The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, adult themes, civic pride, rock and roll, and coal. It starts off with just a bit too much about trains. I'm standing on Platform 5 at Sydney Central Station, and right next to me is the shit Kansen. The shit Kansen. Yes, a train that in 2021 actually takes longer to go from Sydney to Newcastle than the trains of the 1930s and 1940s. This train will cover 168 kilometres. It's actually only 120 odd kilometres Sydney to Newcastle, but it winds in and out and around and rivers and mountains and things. 168 kilometres in two hours, 36 minutes for an average speed of 65 kilometres an hour in 2021 welcome to australia and if it were an all stops train at least once outside the city metropolitan area and along the central coast it'd take two hours 45 minutes rocketing on at a blazing 62 kilometers an hour average speed in the 1940s so what's that 80 years ago the steam hauled newcastle flyer did it in two hours 18. check out those Beautiful uh, class 38 locomotives, big green things, links on the website as always. There were first class cars, there was a buffet so you could have a quiet beer or two along the way. But next to me now though, it's the shit Shitkansen. It's not even a V-set, not even the beloved old purple train which at least has the decency to look like it's from the 1970s because it is all stainless steel and vinyl. They're currently the oldest trains in the New South Wales fleet so you kind of get a sense of nostalgia in them anyway and they, and they got purple vinyl seats what's not to love about that but no this is this is the Oscar the H set Oscar means outer suburban car and that's that's a giveaway I mean they entered service between 2006 and 2012 in essence they're the suburban millennium train which was built you know, to match the Olympic Games in Sydney in 2000, the M set, but there's a couple of extra features. There's a toilet, one toilet per four cars. The V set has four toilets per four cars. Uh, what else has it got? Uh, the seat backs are a bit higher. Uh, there's, there's luggage racks, sort of, uh, and the front is designed to better handle, you know, crashing into wildlife and trucks and that sort of thing. But basically the Oscar, the H set, it's a commuter train with a dunny and no buffet car, even though you're on it for like two or three hours. Anyway, this is H set number H9. It, and specifically car ONL5959, uh, will be my friend for the next two and a half hours. The rest of this podcast will be coming to you from Newcastle, a city I haven't visited since 2013. Yes, that's eight years ago. Wish me luck. Saturday the 13th of March 2021 uh, to kick off the autumn series for 2021 I'm joined by Carol Duncan she's a veteran broadcaster a journalist a multimedia producer and a Newcastle City councillor and indeed there's quite a lot of Newcastle in this episode we'll also be talking about things like her career in radio uh, being cool in your life family tragedies cheap chocolate mangroves coal and Australian rock legends including Vanda and Young and Midnight Oil. 
Uh, we also talk about social media. When people these days say, oh, you know, Twitter is a swamp. Chris Newman the other day, you know, it was good morning sewer rats. And I've always thought that is extraordinary because your experience of a social media platform, in my opinion, is the community that you build around you. Carol reveals her true self. I'm just a chick in front of the telly in my bra and knickers, seeing what's, you know, new on Netflix. And the Lord Mayor of Newcastle takes control of my life. I feel like we really need to get you some adult swimming lessons. This is the 9pm Newcastle Rock Radio and Cold Chat with Carol Duncan and Nuatali Nelms. Carol Duncan, welcome to The Edict. <laughs> Thank you, Still. Now, you have been described uh, to me as the voice of Newcastle. Who said that? Um, uh, oh, this, this bloke I had drinks with recently right. okay. uh, who worked up here uh, uh-huh. for a little while yeah. and said, yeah, you're the voice of Newcastle. Look, we'll get to Newcastle in a minute, mm. uh, but there's so much I want to talk to you about, you know, about you, Carol, like rock and roll, about Harry Vander and George Young. You made them coffee. <laughs> now, young folk, um, Harry Vander and George Young were to Oz Rock what Stock Aitken and Waterman were to English pop of the 80s. Oh, Carol's grimacing already. Oh, my God. Look, that is possibly vaguely accurate, but what a nasty, nasty analogy. <sighs> they created all those great Australian acts, or many, yeah. they, they, a lot of them, not all of them, but they were incredibly influential. They were a part of what I, I, I still these days find an incredible cohort of 10-pound poms right? who came from the UK, various mm-hmm. parts of the UK, uh, in the 50s and 60s, most 50s, and landed in mostly Adelaide, Perth, Adelaide. Um, well, Adelaide, it was the Holden Car Factory out at Elizabeth and the whole town of Elizabeth, named after the Queen, was created for the 10-pound poms. Yes. And marketed for them. And if you look on YouTube, you can find the National Film and Sound Archive has put up those promotional films that they sent over to the UK saying, come for a new life in Australia, look at the space, look at this new suburb, isn't it better than Birmingham or Liverpool and those dingy industrial towns? And you'll be working in a nice, bright new factory (laughs) and and then neighbours. Yes, but it was a a cohort of children who came out with their parents Mm. who really created Australia's contemporary rock and roll music industry. So it was Harry and George, mm-hmm. um, Vander and Young. It mm-hmm. was John Paul Young. It was uh, Jimmy Barnes and his brother. Um, yep. it, it was an amazing – did I mention John Paul Young? You did. Yes. I, I mean, he, he was you know, a megastar. He still and, is. And still is. He can still On his current live. circuit. Yeah. So it was this extraordinary time um, – that these imports really just broke wide open and, and started to create an Australian music industry. Harry and George went into the production side of things after doing mm-hmm. some really cool uh, musical adventures. What was the name of that what was the name of that duo that they did as themselves? With Down Among the Dead Men. Yeah. Oh, <sighs> You, yeah. you keep going. Okay. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll have a Google. Look, this is terrible, isn't it? Because, I know. Um, I don't know, man. 
look, this is this, yeah. this is the kind of quality uh, professional. A flash in the pan. Flash in the pan. Yeah. So, which is ironic. Flip. I mean, it was a flash in the pan. <laughs> yeah, I think it. I think they had two two good hits. Down Among the Dead Men is such a great tune. Yes, in, incredible legacy. But I I in high school. Um, around about 1979, mm-hmm. I did work experience in three really interesting places. Wow, we One, are roughly the same age within uh, a couple of years. Probably. Yeah. One was the Albert Studios. Mm-hmm, which is in Melbourne where all of this stuff... No, Sydney. Sydney. King, Street, King Street, Sydney. Sorry. And that was... And, it, I'll leave my stupidity in there. But, yes, yeah, Sydney. Sorry, so I don't know where it sounds. Chippendale or somewhere, wasn't it? No, no. The Albert oh. Studio was in King Street. Uh, in the city. Uh, so they were at that time... Never rely on this podcast for facts. No, 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 no. Don't believe anything still says, unless he says nice things about me, in which case they're all true. But obviously, other than that, obviously. don't believe a thing. Mm. Um, so they were the powerhouse production company behind and, and record company and agency behind ACDC at that stage mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and a few other interesting um, Australian acts as well. But they had um, their own little studio there where they continued to work together and producing ACDC and whoever else. And, yes, so I did work experience there. It was amazing still. It was in the the very first days of the Fairlight computer. Yes. Uh-huh. And so I was being shown this amazing computer that could do could sample real noises mm. and then bring them back into music production. Mental as anything were in another one of the studios recording Berserk Warriors, which was their song about ABBA. <laughs> anyway, they were really excited because they had been out in the car park um, getting some footsteps in gravel sounds which if you go and listen to Berserk Warriors, you will hear the marching of the, the Viking horde is the Fairlight computer having sampled someone walking in the King Street car park at the back of Albert's studios. So that was pretty cool. Um, work experience at Albert's, work experience at 2SM in Sydney, which in that day was the number one. You know, That was, was, that was the rock station. The they pop, were. St- well, pop rock. Well, rock. The pop music never really became a thing in Australia until later, did it? No, not until sense. later. But that no. was, you know, the breakfast show was Macca and the Hon Nick Jones. And so I did work experience there, which was amazing. Um, and also, I've, I don't know why, I also did work experience at the then Powderworks Records, which was basically, it was a record pressing plant. I just wanted to know how the process worked. Mm. And at the time, they were pressing Midnight Oil's Bird Noises EP. I haven't been a big Midnight Oil fan. Where is that in the chronology? Day one. Oh, right. Yeah. See, I was at... I started university at the very end of the 1970s and, of course, any student politician or anyone who thought they were cool had to be into Midnight Oil because yeah. they had all the right messages yeah. and all of that. And, and can I admit, I thought Midnight Oil was rubbish. I and I saw them live and I thought, why, why is this bald man being so dreadfully uncoordinated on stage and his voice just gives me the irrits. Can't sing, can't dance. My 19-year-old son and his peer group, though, are Oz Rock mad. That's right. It's come come back as a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So all I get is, Mum, you know him. You know them. Mm -hmm. Mum, do you know them? And the thing is the kids have actually grown up knowing a lot of them Mm. but have never thought of them in the context of being rock stars, for example. So, you know, that person that we dropped in to visit in London whom he and his wife made us, you know, scones and a chocolate cake, mm-hmm. um, they're just mummy's friends. 
Right. The kids, the kids just sort of. I think the eldest one now is sort of starting to twig, and he thinks that gives him a little, gives him some brownie points. Okay. So who are these cool people um, in London making your cakes? No, I'm not going to tell you that. Come on, tell which musicians? No, no, ah. no, no, not going to tell you that. That's like when you're hanging out with your friends in their homes. You know, you don't, <laughs> you don't do selfies, for example. Yeah. It's, it's not cool. Um, I mean, there's an argument to say that selfies aren't cool, full stop. But that's no, it. no, no. I love selfies. I love okay. them all the time. All right. But I think that is one of the great privileges of my career, my varied career, has been what it has given my sons in that I grew up not – I grew up thinking that only other people did cool and interesting stuff. That only other people went to university, right. that only other people travelled around the world. You know, people like me didn't do that. And so my kids have grown up um, having cool people, giving cool people a lift in the car, for example. Mm. So, you know, they know rock stars, they know politicians, they know scientists, they know authors. And they don't think about it much, which is great. But hopefully what it has made them not think about but just absorb is that anything is possible. And that's really something you've been doing ever since you were doing work experience at 2SM back in the day, isn't it? You've just gone for stuff. Only accidentally. I've never had a plan still. I find people who claim they have a plan for their life to be really tedious sometimes. Never had a plan. I really liked music. I'm, I can't play an instrument. I, mm-hmm. think, I think maybe I could have sung but um, would have been too shy, too self-conscious to do that. But I think I could have. I think I could have perhaps acted. But only with hindsight now do I think I could have done that at the time. No, 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 me. I can't do that. But I've, I've never had a plan. Everything I have I, – I loved music in, in school – and my girlfriends and I used to sneak out, um, tell our parents we were going to the movies and we would go and see all the brilliant, dirty pop stars performing all over Sydney and use our fake ID to, I mean, I mean, um, go to all the underage venues in Sydney. Yes, yes, because mm. there were so many of them. <laughs> yeah, look, I actually, the first time I was ever asked for ID was at the Rest Hotel in Milsons Point on the night of my 18th birthday. And, of course, I didn't have anything. Mm, it's too soon. It's just happened, it's right? I didn't have a driver's licence. I didn't have, you know, it's, I'm 18. And besides, you've been letting me in for the last two years. Yeah. So they let all my girlfriends in to see our friends who were playing and um, wouldn't let me in. And I said, oh, can you at least let me go and tell my friends that, you know, I can't come in? Yep, make it quick. So I went in. I thought, Buggy, I'm 18. I'm not leaving. <laughs> oh. He came in and dragged me out. I know, right? It's like the Did time you make a scene? Not me, still. No. <laughs> no. Well, I will say, as we're setting up to record this, I just say, oh, Carol, you're not as loud as I thought you would be. Not, I can be. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I even find being on the, the, this end of an interview really interesting because I've been on the other, your side of this for the last 30-something years of, well, of my career. yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 interesting. Like I'm I'm just me, you know. And you said someone had said to you, "Oh, Carol, she's the voice of Newcastle." Yes. Am I? I'm just a chick in front of the telly in my bra and knickers, seeing what's you know new on Netflix. Uh, okay. Well, that was an image that I wasn't expecting at this early hour of the morning. You're welcome. Um, 
<laughs> but again, it fits the brand of this podcast so, <laughs> so well. But yes, as a broadcaster, you are perhaps best known for, for being with the ABC yeah. in this town. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot to ask, are you originally from Newcastle? No. No? Oh. No. No, I was born um, in a dairy farming area in northern New South Wales. I grew up on a dairy farm south of Adelaide. Yeah. yeah. I was born in Maxville Hospital. Right. And, um, I don't, I haven't, and I have no idea where that is. Up the highway a bit. And uh, I started... <laughs> that's, for, for those of you who are not Australian, up the highway a bit means basically the distance from London to Moscow away, probably. Well, no, maybe not that bad. It's yeah. a five-hour drive these days. Yeah. The improvements the to the highway have been yeah. really great. Yes. Um, and I started school in a town called Bowerville, uh, which is... Um, best known these days for the disappearance of, uh, I think it was three young Aboriginal people. Yes. Yep. Again, I should say, uh, people know, I I do put links to all of the things we mention on the podcast webpage uh, so you can follow them up. But that was, when was that, that that disappearance? Uh, I think that was after we left. We left in around 1972. My family Mm. are originally from Sydney um, for various uh, awful personal reasons, in which I'm happy to talk about. Um, my family left Sydney and went and basically hid in northern New South Wales for a few years until it was safe to go back to Sydney. Yeah, there's a story there, obviously. Yeah. yeah. I, which I don't know. Do you want so the short version? Yeah, and then okay. we'll see if we want to the go on. The short version is that in the perhaps late 40s, early Late forties, early fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, my my mother was one of seven, and uh, the eldest firstborn sister was my my. In those days, when she was born in nineteen twenty something, mm-hmm. uh, my grandmother was in labour with her for about four days, so she suffered a degree of oxygen deprivation and uh. therefore um, mental deficit. Mm. Uh, so, so but, but she was brilliant in her own uh, my auntie Joan. You know, she she could look at a knitting, the most complex knitting pattern. And knock up the most beautiful things for us. But she was raped as mm. a young woman. and um, I was really hoping it was just going to be the stigma of someone with, no. with a mental illness. No, she was raped. Period. She was brutally raped by a group of young men who uh, fortunately um, were caught and imprisoned. And then the threats came out to... Um, the family that once they left, they were going to seek retribution. Uh, so my grandparents packed up my parents, who were you know young teenage parents, <coughs> as, as as happened as happened, um, and they fled north. To my dad ended up working uh, managing a dairy property, and we loved it. We loved it, but you know Barrowville was and still is um, a town with. With social issues, you know, look, the the other end of the road between the road between Barrowville and Bellingen is called the Ninety Nine Bends, the Barrowville Bellingen Road. Funnily enough, Ninety Nine mm-hmm. Bends. Dad reckons there actually are Ninety Nine Bends on it. Oh, Bends! I thought bends. you were saying bins. B- bins. 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 Ninety Nine Bins. Benders. <laughs> um, Bellingen is the sexy valley. Barrowville, not the sexy valley. Right. So the socioeconomic divide between those two neighbouring valleys was immense. Um, but yes, eventually, 1972, um, uh, my parents felt that it was safe for the family to head back to Sydney. 
Wow. Mm. Wow. Mm. People have lives and lives have things happen in them. Mm. Is that one of the drivers for just having a go at things? No, because I didn't chance? know that story until a few years ago. Oh, wow. I, oh. I had often thought, how, how did, because I was the baby of the family, I've got three older brothers, mm-hmm. how did we and my mother's parents and sisters and brother, how did we all end up living there? I don't, we just did. So I, I never really questioned it. I don't know. But, yeah, my dad told me all about it a few years ago. Wow. Mm. Wow. Um, and mentioning your dad, mm. uh, in the bushfires a year ago, he had a oh. bit of an adventure, didn't he? My dad. My dad's 85 this year in June. And he has – my dad's an amazing man. He's the patriarch. We all ado- – everybody adores my dad because he's funny and he's cheeky and he's sassy and he's generous and – I think about my father at this point in his life and just think, for both of my parents, although my mum died a few years ago, they really deserved a better run. My dad ended up doing quite well. He had various Mm -hmm. labouring jobs and so on after we went back to Sydney and as time progressed, he ended up head of security at Treasury in Canberra, which is a different story. But then, (laughs) yeah, there were the big bushfires down there and although they they weren't directly affected too much, he spent four nights with the hose on the roof and I think there were 400 homes or something lost in those fires. But, um, yeah, the last couple of years, I just – I would like my dad to have – a good couple of years of nothing exciting going on. That'd be great. <laughs> to change the pace slightly, mm. Caramello Bear. You were the Caramello Bear doing suit work, dressed up as... Uh-huh. Yes. Do we still have caramellos? I don't know that we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's still a, a, yeah. a chocolate-coated caramel Yeah, bear. great. Yeah. So oh. that was when I was... I started my first job in commercial radio um, was in Hobart. So I've, I've been working for a record, CBS Records, now Sony, looking after rock stars touring mm-hmm. and new releases and so on. And um, I one day got a phone call from um, one of the radio people that I was regularly servicing with new releases and so on. And they said, you're mad and you've got a great voice. We're opening, we're launching Hobart's first FM radio station. Do you want to come? And I went, what am I going to be doing? They said, oh, we don't know. You might be on air. You might be making tea. We, we just, you're mad. You've got a great voice. Do you want to come? Oh, and we're paying. We'll pay oh. to move you. And by this stage of working in an awfully misogynistic environment as a young woman in a record company, a national, mm-hmm. international record label, I just wanted to be out of there because I was into probably, the warm embrace of commercial oh, FM oh radio in the 1980s. Yes, full of a whole other group of awfully misogynistic <laughs> men. Um, you know, if you weren't Wendy Harmer, you just didn't get a look in mm. as a woman. Um, but I said, yeah, great, what an adventure. So they packed up all of my worldly goods, they shipped them to Hobart and I went down there and worked on two stations um, over the next three years before I came up to Newcastle. But one of those gigs in commercial radio was um, some sort of sponsorship with an event in the Elizabeth Street Mall and they needed someone to don the Caramello Koala suit and I said, well, I'll do it. And... That's when you learn things like you never take the head off in front of small children. (laughs) 
I know, don't that it no, freaks no. them out. No. They don't do that. Oh, yeah, but the dear. thing I mostly remember from that is walking up to a guy who'd been really awful to me and um, we were collecting for some good cause and being able to growl at him from within my Caramello koala suit and extort money out of him. That's lovely because, yes, it began as a Caramello bear, but then we realised koalas aren't bears eventually and he's now a Caramello koala. I think so. Well, I've, I've got it here. And it's Cadbury, which is why you were doing a thing in Tasmania because that's where the Cadbury oh factory my God. is. The Cadbury factory, about 20-minute <laughs> drive up the river, and every few weeks we would pull together 20 bucks because, you know, we mm. didn't earn much. All you needed was 20 bucks, and someone would go up to Cadbury factory, and they were selling boxes of seconds. Oh, yeah. With six kilos of chocolate. For 20 bucks? Yeah. Wow. And, of course, it would come back to the radio station, and I would fish out all the Turkish delight. That's controversial, isn't it? Turkish Delight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I love yeah. it. Yeah. Look, I don't mind it. Mm. See, I like Turkish Delight, like the actual thing oh, made with rose water. And, yeah, 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 yeah. But, yes, the Turkish Delight chocolate is – look, I'm not against it. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not going to go out of my way for it. Yeah, no, that was mine. Yeah, so much more give me some pepperoni or something. Like <laughs> yes. I scoff that. So that was really interesting. But, but as I said, I worked at two stations there. I went from one which was – um, I guess all stereo-backed to uh, the opposition who had converted from the AM station and they had been like the number one rating station forever because there really wasn't a lot of competition down there anyway. Um, and I, I moved stations because my relationship with the original station that I had been working at had just deteriorated mm. where people mm. had moved on and I'd been asked if I wanted to accept a I was still doing the breakfast show but did I want to do um, a different managerial like promotional role and I said look I'd love to but I'm going to need some help because I don't this is not my area of expertise so I'd been working as an assistant to the then manager um, but I can remember one day when I had been given that role and then going into the station manager and saying, look, I need some questions I've got, I need some help. And was told that, you know, I wasn't going to be helped. Mm. And so that leaves you not feeling very warm and fuzzy. And meanwhile, the opposition station had said, look, you know, we'd love to have you come and work with the two old guys who are just, they were the kings of Hobart. Um and I, I went and worked with them for another 18 months and that was – they are friends to this day, those guys. But after I left and changed stations, there was one night in a nightclub where one of my former colleagues from the first station was so offended by what I had done, traitorous bitch, um, he actually in a nightclub got me up against a wall by the lapels of my coat, screaming at me for what I had done, that I had left and I had gone to the – the enemy. The enemy. Yeah. As I, as I say, it's, it's you know, the, the, the fact that there's no misogyny and, and <sighs> entitled men or anything in, in commercial radio. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of... We could do an episode just on shit like that. We could. Mm. Let's not. No, let's take a break. <laughs> Newcastle, New South Wales population, 320,000 for the city of Newcastle. Uh, and in the rest of the greater Newcastle area, you've got around 570,000 people. 
Uh, that makes it the seventh most populous urban area in Australia. And there's a lot happening here, but at the, the heart of the city, uh, there's coal. Uh, this is the largest coal exporting harbour in the world, 90 million tonnes a year. You can see about like eight to ten bolt carriers in and out every every day. Uh, and well, that coal, that's why they so imaginatively named it after the English coal city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Uh, in fact, uh, when the city was, or the area, was first explored by, you know, white people uh, in 1797, uh, they, they found, like, so much coal, there were lumps of coal on the beach. And in fact, the very first export from the colony of New South Wales was just two years later, 1799. That's just 11 years after the founding of the colony. They exported coal. Uh, Newcastle then was also a penal colony for the convicts who were too troublesome, like even for Sydney, if you can't work on the farm, <laughs> you were sent to Newcastle to dig coal. Uh, and as time went by, the coal brought steel making and steel meant shipbuilding so Newcastle became an industrial city it was very much a steel city or at least it you know was uh, the shipbuilding was pretty much gone by the 1980s uh, as ships became much larger generally and were built more cheaply in other countries and the steelworks uh, closed in 1999 the resources boom more generally meant the city survived but yeah it's it's still about coal it's also about a lot of other things, though, like health and arts and education. And Newcastle is recovering from, from that slump. There are, there are new apartments, new small bars, renovated pubs, and even new trams, like the one you can hear in the background. Carol Duncan, as uh, I said earlier, you are the voice of Newcastle, according to... Someone. A, a gentleman friend. Okay. Uh, that happened. But a also... gentleman friend? <laughs> I, oh, we started off yeah. hot and heavy today. Yeah, we're, we're coming in hot, Lord Mayor. I suspect it might be one of Stuarkarian's gentleman friends and not one of mine. Oh, the voice you. The voice you are hearing there joining us is the Lord Mayor of Newcastle, the right worshipful New Arthur. See, we talked about this. I practiced. I pra- oh, New Atali Nelms. New Atali Nelms. <laughs> That's me. The right worshipful New Atali Nelms. See, coming from someone New- called Stilgarian, really. Yes. <laughs> Carol and I were talking um, um, while we weren't recording about how in broadcasting, you always you practice the name. You practice it. You get it three times. You get it right, and then as soon as the red lights on, you open your mouth and mm, yes. My par- my parents have not made it easy for many a journalist or a broadcaster <laughs> since I've entered the world of council and uh, politics. I'm sure it's brought many a person undone. I think people kind of like the fact that there's an alternate way to address me so they don't actually have to try and say my name. (laughs) We can call you Lord Mayor. (laughs) Exactly, because it's like you can see the relief on people's faces when they don't actually have to say Nuatali. Yeah. Yeah. I see you called a few other things, but anyway. (laughs) Also true. Yes, Uh, and uh, I I understand that you are, of course, the youngest Lord Mayor this city has ever seen and, you know, of the female persuasion and only the second of them in the city's history. Must be uh, an adventure in an old industrial town like this one. It has been an adventure the last, well, over six years now of being the Lord Mayor of the City of Newcastle. 
had a trailblazing woman before me, uh, the first female Lord Mayor ever of any Lord Mayors in the country, Joy Cummings. So we had so, some good early representation of women in local government here in Newcastle. And I think she smashed through um, that glass ceiling back in the 70s and 80s, and I think it was pretty hard for her. And then there was a quite a long period of time, obviously, until 2014 when I was elected. And I, being 38 when I was elected, but I was quite experienced in local government. I'd been mm. on council as a councillor, very active in the community um, for six years prior to that. So I came in to the organisation and to the city with my eyes wide open of what needed to happen, probably what Carol was alluding to. I don't think at 38, growing up in a very progressive family, I had any idea of the type of gender bias mm. that would exist when when you took on the top job. Yeah. Uh, has it got any easier over the time? It has, actually. It, it was very, very difficult the first couple of years. Um, the Deputy Lord Mayor, uh, Declan Clausen, who is uh, a wonderful uh, Deputy Lord Mayor and Councillor, uh, was elected uh, to the seat I vacated when I was elected Lord Mayor only a couple of months after uh, me and was sort of work, – we worked very closely in trying to implement the reforms that we wanted to implement, um, both for the organisation, that is the City of Newcastle, and also the city. And he said to me uh, in those first couple of years – he said to me, Nuatali, I don't know how you survived because it got so – bad in the early years at some different times and I didn't talk about it a lot because it wasn't it would have been it was very difficult to talk about at the time because it was such a heightened political environment we have our own media cycle here in Newcastle so Mm. television stations radio stations uh, so that removes you again from again the national cycle or we're not super involved in the Sydney um, media cycle either. So it is in some respects quite a bubble and as a spokesperson for the the uh, largest council in this area, you end up doing a lot of media. So you end up being quite a target for anyone and everything, mm. not just political opponents but anyone that wants to have a go. I was last here eight years ago, 2013. So things, things that I've noticed that are – Similar but different. Lots of new apartment development, particularly around the Newcastle interchange. But Hunter Street, the altar, is still very bleak, is Hunter Street. Mm. How, how is that ever going to be fixed? Or can it be? What are your thoughts there? Well, it's a very long street. So yes. we have, over the years, broken it up into different precincts. So where we are now is Newcastle West and Hunter Street is one of the streets. Mm-hmm. This is the brand new Schmick office uh, of Newcastle City Council. Uh, we are recording in a room in the library, the councillor's room, no less, which yeah, had, it's not as Schmick as you might hope, <laughs> but it's still pleasant. Um, it still has the new library smell about it. And the money for this library actually came from a bequest Decades ago, didn't it? Yes. It's an extraordinary story. Yeah. There was um, a School of Arts building um, bef- before um, our time that was built and uh, any funds from the School of Arts ever being sold uh, had to be put into building a new library. And that's how the majority of the funds became available, over $2 million, to deliver this new library. So it is a great 
synergy um, that the older building that hasn't been used for a lo- many, many years, that bequest had been sitting with us mm. and until we actually you know, found the right place to build a new library. So that is part of the transition, I, I guess, of Newcastle. Hunter mm. Street... Mm. This, this Newcastle yes. West area around yes. us, as we're calling it, so, by, uh, by the new interchange, which yes. is very schmink. The Newcastle West area is a certain section of Hunter Street that has and has for some time had very high building heights, less heritage impact on um, the Newcastle East area and is the where the new CBD of the city has notionally been planned for quite some time. But what we had seen, for even though those plans, those long-held plans for Newcastle existed, until this council actually came along, they were always just plans on a page. And that those plans actually take quite a lot to actually enact. And you can see huge amounts of changes in this area alone. The middle part of Hunter Street, actually, um, between the waterfront and I said Derby Street and Civic Park on one side, is really the Civic Precinct, which is now where the, the new uh, space, the University of Newcastle's new building is situated. It's also abutted by the museum and the art gallery. So that's very much an educational cultural precinct in mm-hmm. that area and the east end is uh, a wonderful work in progress and it took a very long time in my time alone just uh, living in Newcastle I saw years of proposals after proposals of how to revitalize the Hunter Street Mall area and there was always great ideas but none of them were ever actioned and what we did about five years ago now was make sure we reduced the building heights We ensured that there was heritage protection and working uh, with urban growth at the time, we ensured that that heritage was protected. But we also need to have a developer that was sympathetic to heritage that was actually going to deliver people to living in the city of Newcastle. So one of the issues around uh, why Hunter Street as a traditional high street strip shopping um, didn't work anymore Uh, was complex and not that complex that the high streets around the world were experiencing the same decline of the shopping centres being situated in suburbia, having everything that people needed. They didn't need to go to a high street for their shopping anymore. That that occurred in the city of Newcastle in the 80s. The John Hunter Hospital was moved to New Lambton Heights. So, Which is a distance of uh, how far? About 10 kilometres. Yeah, yeah, it's a big... It's a significant um, way away from... So hospitals, as in terms of an economic driver for a city, would have to be number one in terms of the, the jobs and employment that are created around a hospital hub. The other economic drivers are university sites, and that's why there was a very big push to have the university campus, as part of it, located in the city centre. That's interesting because mm. I did see even, you know, we'll get on to the fact that it's a port city and it's an industrial mm. city, but they're the two biggest employers I saw in the city of Newcastle, uh, uh, the health services and the university. Absolutely, yes. So since BHP closed, there has been quite and a... That's str- the, uh, the steelworks which closed in 99, I looked it up. Mm. Correct. So that is... I, th- I My understanding of people's perception of Newcastle um, different to probably it has been in the last few years because we've done quite a lot of work in trying to change that perception was it was a steel town. Mm. That, that perception still uh, pervaded probably any national discourse on Newcastle, even though the steelworks um, essentially closed on that site back in 1999, so the end of last century. And 
since then, there has been quite a structural adjustment in the employment mix in the Newcastle LGA alone, and that is predominantly into professional services and health and also, obviously, the university. Another very large employer in the region is the RAF, and that's located at Williamtown. Which yes. is a major thing. The F-18 fighters are there. The new F-35s are there when they fly. I, yes. shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. They've been flying. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's a huge place. But, I, I mean, the elephant in the room is coal, though, obviously. And I have to say, coal, it still is a coal city. I can still, there were 10 ships in and 10 ships out in the last 24 hours alone. Um, that's called research. Uh, <laughs> 90 million tonnes of coal a year. It is still the largest coal shipping port in the world. Mm-hmm. And a little factoid, which is not happening so much just now, but a few years ago, last time I was here, uh, the ships waiting, the bulk carriers waiting to get their turn at a wharf, there was 19, I counted them, and someone told me that represented 10% of the bulk carrier tonnage in the world at any one time was waiting off Newcastle. Uh, the port's expanded since then, so that's no longer quite the problem. There is the fact that this is the world's biggest coal shipping port. There are future issues around that, um, but also that the council itself uses 100% renewable energy. Yes, this, where it's, it's a strange <laughs> mix of, of values in the city that, that to me, say, uh, how is all this going to unfold? There, there are challenges, do we say? There are challenges. So the city of Newcastle uh, that wraps around the port and the populated area, so, for example, there's really not a lot of greenfield space left in Newcastle. Mm. It would be classified majority as a brownfield development site. And what that means is... The, the development that happens in this region happens outside of the city of Newcastle in a greenfield way. Everything that we do here is infill development, which is very tricky, and that's some of the, the difficulties we've had around Hunter Street. Hunter Street is completely undermined with a couple of coal seams. Oh, right. Yeah, so what happened was... Oh, of course, the first coal mines would have been right next to the... The first port. coal mines were right in the city of Newcastle. So what has happened as, as mining has progressed... The mining has just shifts further and further up the seams into the valley, then over the valley, then out into the Byalong Valley. It just keeps going. But the original site of the coal mines were right in the city of Newcastle. So we are, you know, and should be considered a mining-affected community. It's now residential populations, parks, other industrial sites. But there was the, the, the site of the first Borden Pillar mining style is just adjacent to Nobby's under Fort Scratchley, right as you enter the port of Newcastle. And you can see some of that uh, just and the side of, just by walking past there, some of the entrances to that style of mining. And when, uh, you know, convicts first arrived here, not long after city, uh, Sydney was settled, there was just chunks of coal on the beach. That it, So the, the coal seams ran all the way down through the valley and the coal seams they're mining now are the coal se- same coal seams they mined when they mined you know, many, many decades ago here in Newcastle. I, I mean, yes, that's just a huge amount of coal. Yes. A huge amount of people still want to sell it and we're not going to get quite as many buyers in the future. Yes, that's the, the expectations of energy production around the world um, have significantly changed, I think, just even in the last year or two alone. This has always been a very progressive city. Uh, 
Joy Cummings back in uh, the 70s was uh, the first uh, mayor, Lord Mayor and Mayor, to fly the Indigenous flag over a civic building. This has been a city of many firsts um, that have dealt with injustice, inequality and dealt with it very uh, in a very forthright, head-on way. And that's no different to dealing with issues addressing climate change. Uh, the community here in Newcastle want to see real action on climate change. And the council has been in a very progressive way since Greg Hees' time. And he was the uh, Lord Mayor in the, the late 90s at that time. And he looked at um, and developed what was known at, at that time as a pathways to sustainability. And that ensued quite a lot of internal structuring in terms of what council was delivering and how they delivered their services in a sustainable way to the community. And, you know, that has um, waxed and waned under different leadership. But with us as a progressive Labor Council, we have been, we were the first council uh, to go to 100% renewables in the country. And we, it was an economic and a social decision at the same time. It's actually better financially for us as a council to use uh, that model of financing our electricity usage than using the historic models. So after us, after Newcastle went first, not long later, um, uh, Sydney and Adelaide also joined um, 100% renewables. The University of Newcastle um, went to a 100% renewable contract. And that is because of the expertise in the energy industry that exists in the Hunter region. So if you want to understand coal, but you want to understand energy, this is the place to understand it. And that's also why the CSIRO um, Energy Research Centre is located right here in Mayfield in Newcastle. Because if, it, if it's happening in energy, it's happening in the Hunter what else is happening here? I think we, we're coming onto the pitch, really, for mm. why why you should move from whichever city you are currently in and move to Newcastle. What for you are the big selling points? And I will ask you too in a minute, Carol. Oh, it's a, just an amazing lifestyle. So you're literally living in a metropolitan city uh, where I would probably uh, contest your view of Hunter Street, uh, given what the changes that I've seen. It's just so, all right. Yeah. Okay, to fair. It is clear that there are changes underway. It, <laughs> it's a work in progress. 100%. But all cities are – we're all a work in progress as humans and all cities are living entities and will always be a work in progress. But what we have seen is significant investment in bringing a population back to live in our urban core. And with that, our urban core has amenity. For example, you could look out your window or walk down the street and see a working harbour. You could also go – at with the same amount of time or distance, walking, riding or even driving uh, to some of the world's best surfing beaches. Mm -hmm. But you can also be then employed in world-class institutions um, like at the University of Newcastle, um, if you're working in defence at the RAAF. But there's also uh, a really large entrepreneurial community mm. um, that has established themselves around some of those larger industries in Newcastle. So there's um, great coffee, great restaurants, great food. You're mm -hmm. not stuck in a commute. And you also have great people living here like me and Carol. And you can well, hang out with us. Yes. And, and Carol, what are your thoughts uh, on that? I came to Newcastle in 1993 and um, I'd only been here once, I think, prior to that because as a kid growing up in Sydney when we went on holiday, you drove past, you know, no one mm. 
turned right to come into Newcastle, stinking steel city. I think the first time I defended this city was actually when I started working in Hobart and Who magazine just launched. Remember when they launched, they were only going to do beautiful, artsy, black and white photos. And it was, yeah. And someone... Yes. Someone wrote, uh, the Lord Mayor's going, I don't remember. I That's don't remember. I'm older oh, than I'm sorry, you. Lord Mayor. Yeah. The old people are talking. Yeah. Um, and there was, someone had written a letter to the editor about the stinking steel city. But I can remember, I know, I know, the Lord Mayor's outraged that yes. someone would say I that. I will track them down. I know. Um, but I had, through my radio career, been or, with the record company coming up here when uh, – FM stations were launching up here Mm. and working with them on new releases and so on. And that was 1989 that I did that first visit and I thought, wow, I I stayed at the old George Hotel, which didn't survive the earthquake. But I can just remember thinking, this is an interesting place. But then I left. Someone wrote this letter and I wrote another letter back to just go, you know, what rubbish, this is an amazing, amazing place. And I think sometimes it takes outsiders to fully see the potential of an area. So I had come out of working in in Tasmania, in Hobart, and doing a lot of work closely with the then um, Tourism Tasmania, which was an extraordinary organisation when it came to understanding how to talk about and promote their region. And I came here and I just thought, this city and this broader region has all of the same attributes that Hobart and Tassie does. We have beautiful beaches, not that you go for a swim without a spring suit in Hobart. We have wilderness. We have um, the wine industry, which goes back to day dot. We have incredible produce and you know it, it all of the same attributes, but they just didn't seem to know what to do with it here. And I think that is probably because of the coal, steel, heavy industrial background mm. So the state and various organs, they tried to talk about the attributes of the region but could just never quite pull it together. And I think that has started to change over the last few years. Um, And I think actually the city itself is driving a lot of that better communication and storytelling about the city and the region. But why do I think you could... All of the things that the Lord Mayor has just said, but... One of, one of the reasons that I do this job as a counsellor is because I want my children, who are now young adults, I want them to leave Newcastle because they want to, not because they feel that they have to. And we're starting to offer that, you know, we're starting to see changes within the university and with creative industries and all sorts of opportunities for them to have really interesting lifestyles. So back in the 80s and 90s, when we were their age still, um, if you were growing yes, up in... Yes, it was very definitely the 90s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, like it's yeah. probably a little bit before that. But anyway, yes. if you were a creative person growing up in Sydney and, and leaving university, you would probably go to somewhere like Katoomba to try to, well, be able to set up a studio, afford to live, you know, whatever you think, that was where it was affordable then, unless you wanted to live with seven other people in the back of Darlinghurst, which is okay for a while, but then you get a bit bored with it. But to have a really sustainable life as a creative, you also had to leave Sydney. Newcastle, over the last few decades, we've always had an amazing music industry, but we are now seeing an incredible... um, accumulation of 
artists, creatives, entrepreneurs, and and I think of all of those as small business as well. So, you know, not just painters and what have you, all sorts of creative people. And yet some things still stay the same. I think uh, yesterday I was having breakfast and the waiter brings out a nice big jug of water for us. And I say, yeah, we're going to need that. We're going for a walk later and it's a bit sticky today. And she says, oh, maybe you should go to the beach for a swim instead. And I said, oh, no, I'm not really much of a beach person. And she just looked at me and went, so what are you doing in Newcastle? <laughs> <laughs> she had a point. She did have a point. You go to the pool. There's That's ocean true. pools. You don't, ha- you don't have to go I in the I can't surf. swim. At all? Uh, not really. And I have a huge phobia of water. Really? Were you born in Australia? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> My mother, when I was very young, you know, going, don't go near the water, you'll fall in and drown. She oh. was very screechy about that. You don't so. have to go for a swim. So where did you, where were you born? Um, just north of Adelaide. Okay, so born. in Adelaide yeah. and all through Grew school, you did, there was no swimming lessons? There were, but. You just didn't go. Yeah. How come? Oh, I don't know. It's really important that it, we really, like all children, and this is an issue for um, families moving here from overseas mm. and being a beach city, mm. it is a big issue and in terms of drownings as mm. well. So Yes, I, I did walk out on the breakwater yesterday and just to see all of those little plaques uh, commemorating people who have been washed oh. into the sea. No, they're really just memorial plaques. Yeah, they're, they're just memorial. That's, that, yeah. that, no, we have not had a catastrophic loss of life of people getting washed off the breakwater. No. Yeah. People, people who have lost oh, someone place plaques oh, okay. out there. Yeah. Even though that's somewhere else. They're, yeah, they're, all, they're all talking about the ocean and, you know. Yeah. yeah, their love of the ocean or they love the ocean so they might sprinkle their ashes in there or okay. something yeah. like that. But I'm more concerned that, about the you? fact... Y- yes, you meant to have a permit. Yeah, but I, I feel like we really need to get you some adult swimming lessons. Well, mm. yes, I mean, it's not my council, but a council where I was in did that some years ago. So um, but they, could, they, they had this horrible thing. They got the, the swimming instructor... It was meant to be an adult learn to swim. Right. But when everyone's in the water, it's kind of like, come on, show us your show us your strokes. And I was like, no, 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 I'm I'm I've got this whole um, thing about phobia. We need to start Okay. At the beginning. So, well, straight away. So well we need to do one on one lessons, so then you're not in a group and in that mm-hmm. situation. And they would have to see your stroke like just the person, so they could figure out where to start with you. Yes. But I would really like it if you would do that. Oh, I've been set a challenge. Yes. Is it also rural kids Yes, that mm. come here? And I can remember growing up in Manly and the Royal Far West um, Children's Home, I think it was called at the time, but it was really respite and health care and so on for country kids. Um, but it was so important that that kids coming from rural areas also know how to swim. Yeah, it's really important. And I think you'll get so much enjoyment out of well, it. Well, I will, and, mm. and, you know, my doctor will be happier. You know, <laughs> I'll get some exercise in. So there, uh, depending on how deep you want to go, you can go in – I wouldn't go in the surf, but there are pools that are shallower that you mm. could just go in for, a, like, a dip. You don't have to, like, fully submerge yourself. Yeah, just a bit of a spot, yeah. But it'd be, so, it'd be so nice to be able to the, – the salt water, I think, is so cleansing. Mm. And that's what's nice about – I think living so close to a beach but in a city where you don't get that in other places, if you really need to just shake it off, just dive in the salt water 
and it's like it's a very cleansing experience. There's something for everyone here still. You can choose your own adventure in Newcastle. You can. Ladies, thank you very much for that, Lord Mayor. Thank you very much My for pleasure. coming down from your office. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. Right, so basically I uh, am now committed, uh, thanks to the Lord Mayor of uh, Newcastle, uh, to getting some Learn to Swim things happening uh, once uh, the next summer rolls around, the next season for same, and I think I'm going to have to do them in Newcastle. Uh, thank you to uh, Nuatali Nelms, Lord Mayor of Newcastle. Uh, I'll be back with Carol uh, Duncan in just a moment, uh, but it's housekeeping time. First of, uh, first of all, the next episode in this autumn series 2021 will be with philosopher Patrick Stokes, who's also one half of the band The Fake McCoys, and also you'll find him as Pat Stokes on Twitter uh, with a very, very large number of opinions about the affairs of the day. So uh, that will be more like uh, some of the uh, uh, the special guest episodes we've had before where we look at... Uh, uh, the news of the day, because, uh, of course, <laughs> no news has been happening lately, has it? Goodness me. Uh, Pat Stokes also has a new book out, Digital Souls, A Philosophy of Online Death, which I'm intrigued by. This podcast is dying a bit too. Anyway, um, that's next time. In about a week from now. Uh, and as you know, uh, this podcast uh, was is made possible, as always, by you, uh, dear generous listener. Uh, and, of course, now it's thank you to all the people who contributed to the 9pm Autumn Series 2021 Possible Campaign. They are all listed on the website, but I'm going to power through them all right now and do more individual thanks as the series progresses. So, first up, a special thanks to those who bought conversation topics. That's Garth Kidd, who you'll hear from in a minute, Joshua Graham, Rizel Snark, and a person who chooses to remain anonymous. Uh, three trigger words will be coming from Bjorgen Drufeldroff, Gay Rainbow, Gay Rainbow Anarchist, and another person who chooses to remain anonymous. Uh, one trigger word, each from Dan Illick, Drew Mayo, Joel Michael, John Twyman, Jonathan Ferguson, Jupe DeWitt, Oberon's Ghost, Paul Williams, Paul Williams I've written down again for some reason, possibly in my own incompetence. Peter Blakely, Peter McCrudden, Ramsey Smith, Rick Heyman, Stephen Collins, Syl Mobile, and two more people who choose to remain anonymous. Uh, there's all of the media freedom citizens who contributed a basic tip, seven of them, and the foot soldiers for media freedom who gave a slightly less basic tip. Andrew Kennedy, Ben Moretti, Bob Ogden, Dave Amesbury, David Heath, Frank Filipponi, Garth Keat again, good heavens, Gavin C, Greg Randolph, Katrina Zetti, Rowan Pierce, Susan Rankin, Sil Mobile again for some reason, Tim Johns, and three more people who chose to remain anonymous, and another five people who chose to have no reward at all, even though some of them were the most generous of contributors. So that's all of the 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 campaign people and it's also thank you since last time to Brent and Ralph 
troublemaker Pete Lawler, who's uh, a frequent troublemaker on the pod. And uh, who's this? Oh, Ross Nye. Yes, you'll hear more about uh, what Ross has to say in a moment. Uh, But if you'd like to join those people and support this podcast and help defray my costs in Newcastle, the9pmedict.com slash tip. Go to the9pmedict.com slash tip. Did you just call me a lovely thing? Um, yes. <laughs> of yes, course you I, did. Yes, I did. You are a lovely thing. Oh, thank you. Carol. We will look at some listener trigger words now. Ross Nye, I told you. I told you we would hear from him again in a minute. Yeah. Uh, his trigger words mm-hmm. for us to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mental health break. Mental health break. Um, what does is, what is that create in your mind? I've got, I mean, I've, I have some thoughts. Yeah. Look, I... Th- Think about some of the things that I see and deal with um, as a, I guess, a reasonably high-profile woman in this city. Um, And it's actually when I really get upset by some of the the vitriol that can be... Because people are much more inclined to tell you what they don't like and why it's all Mm -hmm. your fault than they are to say, you know, gee, thank you. Um, the Lord Mayor gets it a hundred times worse than I do, but I think having had a profile in Newcastle, you know, you, people will also tend to take pot shots occasionally. But I think, I think the tribe that I have around me is such that my mental health break comes from them. And I also try to ensure that my online communities, other communities, you can call it my echo chamber if you like, but Mm. I do see a lot of other stuff that's not in my echo chamber. But when people these days say, oh, you know, Twitter is a swamp. Chris Yulman the other day, you know, good morning, sewer rats. And I've always thought that is extraordinary because your experience of a social media platform, in my opinion, is the community that you build around you. My social media community is, by and large, um, collaborative, friendly, supportive, smart, challenging, but really obnoxious. And, you know, I do not have the time or the space in my life for constant negativity. I find it interesting that some people on the Twitters in particular seem to be there solely for the purpose of complaining to other people about what that person has said or done or whatever, often often in a political field, often slagging off women who, God help us, have views of their own. <gasps> they do not. I, I, I know, and... and, and Wow, they even had a whole day. International Women's Day this week. The mm. Women get a whole day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I consume my news and information increasingly and have done since 2008, nine, increasingly through, through Twitter, even mm. when I was at the ABC. And we were challenged as broadcasters at that time. There are these new social media things. Oh, yes. And we don't know what this is going to mean for programs, but, hey – Here's half a dozen of you. Play with it with your programs and see what 
it means. And for me, it changed everything. Because when I started at the ABC and you wanted to talk about a, a, an ex, to an expert in a particular topic, your producer would whip out their old phone book or their Rolodex and you would talk to the same usual suspects that people have been talking to for 25 years. Well, you knew they would say yes. I mean, that was, used to be my job as a producer, right? You'd, well, you know, we're going to be talking about X, so we'll get them on it. And it happens yep. now with me writing about cybersecurity. So when yep. anything like that is suddenly in the news... I can tell in the morning because my phone starts ringing nice and early because the breakfast shows want me to comment on something that, quite frankly, I don't follow the news that closely. But, you know. uh, Twitter changed that because all of a sudden, as a broadcaster, I could pop onto Twitter and say, hey, I want to talk to somebody about X. Yes. And people would say, oh, there's this person or me or whatever. And, And I loved actually being able to grow, particularly in science and health communication, um, a whole new cohort of people who were just as expert as the same old usual suspects that we'd always Mm -hmm. had, but never had a voice, never had a platform, and who we kind of trained up to become these brilliant new public communicators in whatever their area of expertise Mm. was. That changed everything. And I now see some of them appearing on, you know, the drum or whatever, and I'm just like, yes! You know, that is that is amazing because you have to change those voices. You have to bring new, younger experts in. Absolutely. So thank you, Ross, and I, for that completely tangential look at a mental health break. That, Hi, Ross. That's what the trigger words are for. That's what it happened. That's, that's what they're for in this little podcast. And the other one... Uh, Garth Kidd, a long-time supporter of the pod, friend from way back. Mangroves Mangroves. is his conversation topic. Garth, mangroves. Hmm. Um, Nope. Nope. Okay, well, maybe it's a Newcastle thing because he says, according to his son, uh, somewhere among the mangroves at Carrington here in Newcastle, there is a saltwater-loving dope plant growing away which only a few kids from... The school, no, no, where there's this wild Carrington. dope plant in the mangroves. At, at, I mean, it's a weed, it'll grow anywhere. But. Saltwater loving. Now, look, this is really interesting because as a freelancer, I've been doing a lot of work recently um, on drugs. For, on drugs <laughs> for the Australian Centre for Research Excellence in Medicinal Cannabinoids. Oh, right, yes. Yes, yes. so whether or not they, they grow in a salty environment, I don't, I don't know. Well, according to, I mean, this is, this is, uh, I mean, now me telling you is makes it third-hand information. I love this. While I was still at the ABC, I started um, a little Facebook group for people who were, it's basically local history, but sort of, you know, myths, legends as well. Oh, and, yes. and I thought maybe 200 people would be interested. Nine years later, we have 60,000 wow. of them. Wow. Uh, but yes, people love finding out about the stories, so... Uh, you know, up in the Blue Mountains, there's, there's of course, the, the Lithgow Panther. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's the secret US-Australian UFO base oh underground God. in the Jamison Valley. That's so cool. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, it, a whole range of things. But, yeah, you find out about just little local things. I mean, um, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle stayed up in the Blue Mountains at yeah. the uh, Hydro Majestic Hotel. Yeah. And I keep forgetting whether his book was Lost World or one of the others of those, but, you know, the hidden place where dinosaurs were. And he was inspired by that, looking out 
over the valleys in the Blue Mountains. Mark Twain stayed in Newcastle. He did. And and there is a terrific quote from him that I'll completely cock up where he describes Hunter Street as um, one Newcastle as being one long street with a cemetery at one end with no bodies in it and a gentleman's club at the other end with no gentleman in it. <laughs> oh, dear, that, that, is, that is very much... And probably was at the period. I mean, it, it again, is a great... The cemetery thought. had been resumed, um, so whatever bodies could be removed were removed to Sandgate Cemetery and the Newcastle Club's been there forever. It's got mm-hmm. a lot of dead animals on the wall. And as members, I imagine. Um, <laughs> I have no comment. <laughs> um, look, we, we could rabbit on all day. I should probably stop. I should probably just say that this really is a friendly city and people should come here. It is an amazing, amazing city. We are changing so fast. I am so excited by what's happening around me, what's happening in the city and the opportunities that are coming. So I... I guess where my head's at, as I said earlier, you know, I see my job as trying to help the Lord Mayor and a great team of people get good shit done and to set us up for the next hundred years. And that I get to do this job um, for bugger all pay, no superannuation, no entitlements, um, because you you hear the stories, councillors with brown paper bags and snouts in the trough. (laughs) Anyway... You've, you've been doing I don't know it wrong that, by the sound of it. I don't know where that trough is, but <laughs> I do now know where the plant is. Do you, do you, yes. Do you, I'm, um, now, I'm now seeing all the school kids over Carrington Way going yeah. up into the mangroves to yeah, find yeah. The, the dope plant. Um, Bing. And if anyone, if anyone listening to this can tell Carol where the trough is that she can put her snout into. <laughs> I'm quite happy to work for a living. I, uh, <laughs> I think the ABC bashed that into me very oh, yes. well. You know. It's got behavior, um, to be me at this point in time in this city is amazing. It's all about – it's our time. We're about to blossom. It's – yeah, it, it makes my head spin. It's extraordinary. Come Carol back and Duncan. have those swimming lessons with the Lord Mayor. She's going to take <laughs> you out personally, you know. I, I'm, I'm getting the feeling she yeah. is. She looks like a bit of a beach girl. Yeah. Carol Duncan, thank you so much for your time. Welcome still. I think I'll be back uh, in Newcastle uh, sooner than eight years from now, if for no other reason than to get some swimming lessons. Uh, Look, I will mention one thing uh, that we talked about off the recording. The city of Newcastle has a scheme to encourage people to move to the city that includes a $10,000 grant. So the the deal is you have to be coming from another city in Australia. Uh, you have to be in certain kind of industries. Uh, and you have to do them a video of all things to kind of pitch the idea of why you'd be a useful addition uh, to the city of Newcastle. Uh, and if you do, they'll chuck in ten thousand uh, dollars and free co-working space, uh, amongst other things, and help you uh, network and get your small business or self-employed thing get up in Sydney. Uh, links, obviously, to everything on the website, but that one's just called move to newcastle.com.au. Uh, Sounds like not a bad little deal.
Well, that's the edict for now. Um, all the links are, of course, at the 9pmedict.com. Uh, you can also go there, tip, like, subscribe, send money, all the things. Uh, next episode will be next week with Pat Stokes, the philosopher. If you have input, conversation, topics, etc., midday, Friday the 19th of March, I'll need them. Until then, I'm still Gerian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.